Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Live from Las Vegas, it's time for you to be Talking Movies with America's most award-winning film critic, John Barber. You're being, John, you're being so gentle. I've heard you give reviews and you're so rough, you're saying. <laughs> How would you have evaluated your own work uh, in some of the films that you did prior to, uh, <laughs> prior to The Longest Shot? I mean, Much like... better than you, my friend. <laughs> Our next guest is one of those rare talents who has something to say and can say it funny. He's a writer-performer on the new Laugh-In and one of the most popular, outspoken, and entertaining personalities on the local news here in Los Angeles. He's won a half a dozen Emmys as a film critic and host of his own shows. Let's welcome Mr. John Barber, right over there. Hi there, this is John Barber, and welcome to Lucky Show Number 13 of Talking Movies. You're about to meet tonight one of the most interesting and most fascinating people I have ever met in Hollywood. Now, as you can tell by this wall behind me, that I've known and been around and worked with all of the major stars in town. They were not nearly as interesting as the man that you're about to meet very, very soon. And the man that I want to meet right now is our engineer and director, my cohort, Doug Newsom, Doug, how are you today? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Hi, John. Well, I hope you're as excited about this show as I am. I mean, I loved doing the two great speeches shows that we did. And today we're going to conclude it because I've had scores and scores of emails from around the world that saying, John, you've forgotten two of the best, greatest speeches ever in movies. And we're going to start the show with those, and you can always see, you can also see that I am wearing a suit, which means I have a guest. And I'm telling you, he is absolutely fantastic. But first, I have to talk a little bit about the first great speech that you were going to see. In the 50s, when I went to Los Angeles at 17, and it was all illegal, I still wanted to be an actor, as I told you earlier. I went to... Uh, night school because that's where I first saw Jack Nicholson and that's where uh, uh, Natalie Wood went. And people used to say to me, hey, if you want to be an actor, you've got to go over to the uh, silent film theater on Fairfax and watch some of the silence, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. And I said, listen, I don't want to talk. That's not real life. I don't want to look at movies where people don't talk. So I never went. That was in the 50s, uh, during the absolute height of the horrible blacklisting that was going on in this country. Depressed by that and in desperate need to find out why my father deserted our family, I went to England in search of him. I ended up at a place called the Castle Theater in Farnham, Surrey, where I got to be an actor for almost a year, a different play every two weeks. And I, I absolutely adored it. Uh, the meeting with my father never worked out, so thank God I had a job to fall back on. I stayed in a boarding house, 
And the lovely landlady took care of me so well. And then one day she said to me, Johnny, you want to be an actor? Why aren't you seeing Charlie Chaplin? And I said, you know, people used to tell me that in Hollywood. And I have no interest in that because that's not real life. They don't speak in those movies. And she said to me, John, do you want to know something? And I said, what? Art speaks much louder than words. An unknown landlady saying something this brilliant. I gave her a big hug and I said, well, just for you, I'll go see the first Gold Rush. She said at Piccadilly Movie Theater on Piccadilly Square, they were having a five-day festival of Charlie Chaplin. So I went Monday morning. The first film was The Gold Rush. I was there till the theater closed. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, every morning when it opened till late close. I cannot tell you the number of times I applauded loudly, laughed loudly. I wanted to stand up and cheer. I could not believe the genius of this man. Charlie Chaplin was by far the greatest genius to ever work in front of or behind a camera. And he had greater crowds gathering to see him than the Beatles ever had. However, he was forbidden now to show his movies in the United States. Now he lived in the country for 40 years, but the kid was an orphan Jew. He didn't think he belonged anywhere. So he never became, he never felt a citizen of anywhere, just a citizen of the world. He was married and devoted to his job. Well, of course, J. Edgar Hoover and the powers that be, the Nazified America. Do you know that uh, Project Paperclip brought 5,000 convicted Nazis to the United States after the Second World War. And they all wanted Charlie Chaplin cut out of the country. So they never allowed him to return in 1952. That's why, and his films were never allowed to be shown. Now, guess what happened? He was the greatest silent star ever. But when he found a voice... It was in The Great Dictator, one year before the United States even thought of getting into the Second World War to stop Hitler or Mussolini or any fascist, Franco in Spain. Charlie Chaplin made The Great Dictator. I have scores and scores of emails from around the world saying, shame on you, John, if you do not show that. And in this speech, much more valuable and important and topical today is probably what these friends of mine say is true and what the critics say is true, the greatest speech ever in American movies. So, Doug, would you please play the great dictator speech from Charlie Chaplin made in 1940? I'm sorry, but I don't want to be an emperor. That's not my business. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. 
Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't give yourselves to brutes. Men who despise you, enslave you, who regiment your lives, tell you what to do, what to think, and what to feel, who drill you, diet you, treat you like cattle, use you as cannon fodder. Don't give yourselves to these unnatural men, machine men with machine minds and machine hearts. You are not machines. You are not cattle. You are men. You have the love of humanity in your hearts. You don't hate. Only the unloved hate, the unloved and the unnatural. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery. Fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man nor a group of men, but in all men, in you. You, the people, have the power. The power to create machines, the power to create happiness. You, the people, have the power to make this life free and beautiful, to make this life a wonderful adventure. Then in the name of democracy, let us use that power. Let us all unite. Let us fight for a new world, a decent world, that will give men a chance to work, that will give youth a future and old age a security. By the promise of these things, brutes have risen to power, but they lie. They do not fulfill that promise. They never will. Dictators free themselves, but they enslave the people. Now let us fight to fulfill that promise. Let us fight to free the world, to do away with national barriers, to do away with greed, with hate and intolerance. Let us fight for a world of reason, a world where science and progress will lead to all men's happiness. Soldiers, in the name of democracy, let us all unite! Do you notice that twice he said, in the name of democracy, and it was this democracy that did not want this man's voice to be heard. And the same thing happened with another Englishman, John Lennon. Nixon did not want his voice heard in this country. They tried hard to deport him, but he succeeded in staying, thank God. And it would not surprise me in the least if the CIA or the powers that be had also opt John Lennon. Now to the speech that brought me to America when I was a 16-year-old boy. It was 1939, the year that Hollywood made some of its greatest, greatest movies. This movie was a movie by Frank Capra, written by Sidney Buckman, and it was starring a young Jimmy Stewart. It is the movie that made Jimmy Stewart a star, and surprisingly, thankfully in America, it was based on a true story, which made it all the more powerful. He plays a young 
politician, a senator, a congressman, and he's filibustering to bring down a corrupt politician. And that corrupt politician is brilliantly, brilliantly played by Claude Rains. This is a speech that made me want to come to this country. So, Doug, would you please play Jimmy Stewart's speech written by Sidney Buckman from Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Get up there with that lady that's up on top of this Capitol Dome, that lady that stands for liberty. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. And you won't just see scenery. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for himself after centuries of fighting. And fighting for something better than just jungle law. So he can stand on his own two feet, free and decent, like he was created, no matter what his race, color, or creed. That's what you see. There's no place out there for graft, or greed, or lies, or compromise with human liberties. And that, if that's what the grown-ups have done with this world that was given to them, then we'd better get those boys camps started fast and see what the kids can do. And it's not too late, because this country is bigger than the tailors, or you, or me, or anything else. Great principles don't get lost once they come to light. They're right here. You just have to see them again. I guess this is just another lost cause, Mr. Payne. All you people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both knew, Mr. Payne. You think I'm licked. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. Okay, just fainted.
crime against the people who sent me here, and I committed it. Every word that boy said is the truth. Every word about Taylor and me and Graft and the rotten political corruption of my state. Every word of it is true. I'm not fit for office. I'm not fit for any place of honor or just. It's not me. I am so glad they played the end of that clip because the astonishing thing, first of all, when this movie was released, it did not get good critical reviews, but the audience absolutely loved it. And it was the movie and the speech that made Jimmy Stewart a major star. And you saw Claude Rains, that brilliant, brilliant villain. Well, it was Claude Rains, if he had kept his mouth shut, would have gotten away with continuing to be as corrupt as he is and as corrupt as anybody that we have in Washington right now. But it ended up like a bad Perry Mason TV show with Claude Rains jumping up and saying, oh, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm guilty, I'm terrible. But that is the speech that brought me to America, the America that I absolutely love and still do. Anyway, I want to get now to one of the most interesting, interesting people I have ever met in my life. And of course, I met him in pursuing my career in Hollywood. And as I said earlier, you know, I was Sinatra's private writer for four and a half years. Red Fox was my mentor as a comic and a lifelong friend. I knew them all and hung around them all. And they were all interesting indeed. But this man, whom I love, is one of the most interesting ever. Now, you probably never heard of him. Nobody has ever heard of him except everybody who means something in Hollywood because he is by far the most successful, the most prominent, and the most interesting publicist in the business. And he has worked with and helped almost every major star. And I adore him. His name is Harlan Ball. Harlan, how are you today? I'm doing good. What a buildup. Oh, well, listen, I got to tell you, first of all, looking at your office, I feel inferior. You got more trophies and pictures of stars there than I do. So shame on me and good for you. But your thoughts on those two speeches that you just saw. Now, you may remember seeing the chaplain's speech. I never got to see it until just recently. And of course, you must remember the Jimmy Stewart speech. Well, as you know, I, I didn't know what you were going to be showing beforehand, and you could not have chosen two more meaningful speeches to me. I don't know if you know, but I was Chaplin's publicist. You were? You've got to be kidding. After, oh, his, after, after his passing, um, they released a series of DVDs and sounds, and we did, uh, we used to, I used to work with Dustin Hoffman and the silent movie airings at the Royal Theater, at the Royce Hall Theater. So oh my every, gosh. Every year we would do with the LA Phil, we would do a screening of some great movie. Hold on, I've just got to tell you something. You know, this happens every time I meet you. I mean, I've heard hundreds of your stories, and every time we sit down, you pop up with something new. You were <laughs> Charlie Chaplin's publicist after he died. Did you deal at all with Una O'Neill, his wife? No, I dealt with Michael. Really? Yeah. I, it, was, it was funny. I would start working on these things and I started putting out press releases with Susan for Harold Lloyd and for Charlie Chaplin and Army Archer, who we miss, uh, called me out of the blue and said, Harlan, is it possible your clients are getting older? 
considering I've been with George Burns and Bob Hope and Roy Rogers and all of those saying, he went, how can your clients be getting older? Oh my gosh. Well, what? Yeah, no, I, 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 that's the, the, his speech and just what he went through because I worked, you know, Tiffany Hedren's a client and she, uh-huh. she's the only woman to have worked with both Hitchcock and Charlie Chaplin. Oh my gosh, you're kidding. When did she work with Charlie? She did Countess of Hong Kong with uh, Marlon Brando and uh, Sophia Loren. Yes, that was when Brando. She played Marlon's wife. Yeah. Yes, that's when Marlon proved he couldn't do comedy. (laughs) (laughs) In spite of your help. She said that Charlie drove him crazy because Charlie would give you line readings, would literally, where Hitchcock would leave you alone. Right. And he would tell you if you're doing it wrong. Otherwise, he wouldn't talk to you. Um, Whereas Charlie Chaplin would literally come on and do the whole thing for you. And it drove Marlon insane. (laughs) Well, you know, it's interesting because when I was doing the research on Chaplin, there was an actress, she was elderly now, but she had been the girl, I think, in Limelight, and and Charlie was blind or something. Yeah. She said he spent three days giving her line readings and reshooting a hundred times. It drove people nuts. But look at the end result. Yeah. Yeah, and um, she, uh, Tippy said that she tried to introduce Hitchcock and, and Chaplin together um, at one point because they were both in the UK at the moment, and she invited them both to dinner. And Hitchcock apparently said, "Why would I want to do that?" <laughs> oh my goodness gracious! That's so it never of... happened. But uh, yeah, um, didn't um, didn't Chaplin get a, an Academy, at least an Academy nomination for the musical score for Limelight in nineteen seventy three? Yeah, he got the nomination, and then of course he got, uh, you know. Uh, well, he got the, yeah, the lifetime was nineteen seventy-two. Yeah, that's right. So it was so well deserved. But you know, but that's America. You know, shame on America. You know, it's like the same. I mentioned this the other day about Muhammad Ali. I mean, everybody thinks that Muhammad is one of the greatest sports heroes or American heroes ever in history. But in 1970, they wanted him dead. Yeah, I don't. You can't see it. Right above me is the last piece he signed um, wow. on the wall above me because he was a client. And right above oh, me, hold on, hold on, hold look up. Tell me about Ali. Tell me. You can see there. He signed that piece for me in the card. Oh my gosh, my gosh! Well, you know when I introduced him, he had come to town because he wanted to do my show because he wanted to speak up against the Vietnam War. Right. And I was one pl- I was one person other than Howard Cassell. Howard would give him five minutes. I was gonna give him an hour and a half. God, and he was so wonderful. So when he came on the show, since he was a guy that would always do these little couplets about fighting and rhyme, he'd do it in rhyme about his talents. And I was gonna knock somebody sky high. So I introduced, uh, He came to do Flip Wilson's show Mm -hmm. the next day. So when I introduced him, I introduced him with a funny poem. And he loved it. And that's what they used on the Flip Wilson show. Oh, perfect. Isn't that wonderful? It it, it drives me crazy that they gave Muhammad such a hard time and they gave Charlie such a hard time. They took his star away from the Walk of Fame for a while. (laughs) Yes, I know. I mean, it's insane. And then I see it today. Because they're beginning to do the same thing to other stars in the past, remove their honors um, uh, because of uh, PC or or cut cancer, uh, cancel culture and things like that. They're going to hate themselves later for it. Okay, first, you know, 
you have the unbelievable, you have a great interesting life and your client list and the story's endless, but I want to hear a little bit about your story because you still are so young. I mean, you look terrific right now. Where were you born? Uh, what were your parents like? And did early movies have any influence on what you would do in your later life? Tell me. Um, well, first of all, I, th- I think Dick Clark gave me some good tips <laughs> on staying young. Um, <laughs> Wait, uh, I, no, he was a creamy, crispy donut muncher, so it wasn't that. Okay. <laughs> um, oh, good grief. I was born in Colorado, Denver. Uh, moved around a lot. Um, my father worked for a company that originally was called Craigski and then called Kmart during their growth spurt. So my father's job was to go around to every city and open the new Kmart in whatever city it was in. So every six months I was moving someplace new. Um, I can't say that movies, even TV, you know, good Quaker boy, we weren't allowed a lot of TV and, wow. and movies were, we were, I, I, the, I moved with the movies we were allowed were the Disney movies like uh, that darn cat and things like that. I don't know that they played a huge part in, uh, my my industry background um well when you were a kid what did you think you wanted to be what did you aspire to maybe um i wanted to be i bet one point a forest ranger really Uh, and i think i would have headed that way had it not been for oddly enough um i had been doing theater you know the high school theater and things like that and and got involved with those with a group called singers and i toured and, and sang with them and and um I auditioned for a little group called Up With People. Do you remember them? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And folks should know, you sing absolutely beautifully. You're sort of a lesser Robert Goulet, okay? <laughs> and you sing quite often in church, which is terrific. Yeah, uh, church and um, Vitello's and Catalina's, whenever Eileen Graff or others asked me. So how how on earth did you ever grav- gravitate toward this business um i started singing in church uh, young and they would do shows um the prodigal son and things like that and i would start i got into those programs i won a uh, at church i won a uh, a gong show competition <laughs> this is actually the start i wish i had a picture i have a picture but i wish i had to share it with you i actually um got wheeled out in a, a round old tub and had a stock and had a uh, cap on my head, and I sang Rubber Ducky. <laughs> and I took first prize. Oh my gosh, that's funny. So uh, that, was my, that was my introduction into entertainment was uh, Rubber Ducky in a tub for a, for a pie social at my church. And uh, then I started. Oh, but you know, I think some of the people you met as a, as a youngster, or maybe even the teacher, and I'm mm-hmm. thinking primarily of Blackwell, who became a sort of your mentor or good friend or whatever. Wasn't he in the designing, dress designing business? Oh, yeah, but I I didn't meet Blackwell until much later. Um, I actually, um, I I went to an audition with a friend who was auditioning for a little show called Oliver. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I wasn't planning on auditioning. I I sat in the back waiting for him to finish, and it was in Colorado, and his mother had dropped us off. And the director, Ken Foster, saw me sitting in the back and came back, came back and said, I'm sorry, you either have to audition or you have to go. You can't just watch. 
So I thought, well, fine, it's snowing outside, it's freezing, I'm up to nature's mother. And I, I danced, I sang, and I acted, and I got cast, and he didn't. Oh, my God. And, yeah, it's the same director he cast me years later. He didn't cast me as Oliver, but uh, I was one of Fagin's gang. Oh, my God, how terrific. Yeah. And years later, he gave me my first theatrical. Uh, I played in David and Lisa. Um, really? Yeah, David and Lisa. I, I, was I wasn't bit. David or Lisa. I was rapist. I was rapist. Not even rapist number one. Oh, I was my God. David and, David and Lisa. David and Lisa. Was that a play as well as a film? Oh yeah, I saw the film. Yeah, it was a play. Oh, did you appear in the film? No, no, I was far too young for that. Really? Yeah, I appeared in the, the stage production. I played uh, rapist number two. I always thought, wh- how, what kind of impression did I leave him with? That he hired me as a pickpocket and then <laughs> hired me as a rapist. Well, you know, my first, my, which of course, immediately my first big professional production i was a nazi and what was that sound of music i played rolf oh you did where yeah. on broadway no that was a that was a uh equity house theater oh my gosh almighty well you know as a critic to me the greatest shows that i enjoyed the most were one person shows josephine mm. baker in her 70s oh yeah went to the dorothy chandler pavilion I wrote a love letter to her on the air as a critic, and she sent me a dozen roses. And, oh, my God. But the show that I saw three times, standing room only, and I stood and applauded at the end, was Hal Holbrook as Mark Twain tonight. Yes, yes, and yes. Ever yes. since I have known you, for the years that I've known you and watched you perform and sing and tell stories, I've been bashing you as your friends have to do a one person show and you're still not doing it. So I hope you do it. So it's, it's funny you're saying that because Hal was one of my champions asking me to do that. Really? Yeah. I I did a show. I did a charity performance and they asked me if I would read the charity information at intermission. And when they brought up the lights, I had already performed. And when they brought up the lights, I saw Mr. Hal Holbrook sitting in the front row and I, and I went, Oh, hello, Mr. How are you? He stood by and I said, and I looked off, I said, that's not intimidating at all. And <laughs> I started reading and I said, you know, if, if they had told me Mark Twain was sitting in the front row, I would have memorized this. Oh, how. And yeah. afterwards, he did some interviews and twice he mentioned me in his interviews. Um, he was a huge champion of mine and I just adored him. And so uh, how on earth? I mean, you should have gone further as a performer with the talent and the personality that you have, and you're a good-looking fellow. How come you ended up being a publicist and making other people famous? And who was your first client, and how did you get into that business? Um, Well, um, God chose the direction. Honestly, um, my agent... Hold it a second. Why did you say God chose your direction? I I, think... I think God uh, God opened doors for me in in the direction I wound up going. Um, in I what think, way? Well, uh, at Paramount, uh, he opened doors to uh, start assisting stars. I was one of the last uh, contract assistants. <laughs> um, I was assigned to Tom Cruise on Top Gun. I was assigned to oh you know different God. artists. Um, and I think I was, my agent loved, I got work everywhere on theater every time I, I booked everything in theater, but I couldn't book TV and film at all, but I was terrified of New York and every offer I had in New York, 
I turned down. And this is the early 19, the late 70s, early 80s. Wow. It was a little more frightening back then. Today, I own New York. I have no qualms at all. You know, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I, I, with Angela Lansbury and Carol Channing and all the others, Tommy Toon, I I can, New York's mine. But uh, then I was terrified of it and wouldn't go that direction. And that's where, you know, would have been my work. I started at Elidge Garden Summer Stock Theater. Um, That was, I went to the Academy of, uh, uh, the Academy of Dramatic Arts first. And then I went to work at the uh, Elidge Garden Summer Stock Theater, which is where Mary Pickford was. Uh, George C. Scott started there. Antoinette Perry, of course, the, uh, the Tony Awards, named after her, is where that started. She started there. I had a great pedigree. And first show that came in, I was actually not hired to be in the show. I was hired to be an usher. Oh, my. And the first day of the show, or first day, the first star came in, I got a call from Chris Kirkland, the producer of the show. It was 84 Charing Cross Road. And I got a phone call saying uh, they had lost the driver for the first star. And I had, and only because my name was Bowl, I was the first one on the, <laughs> on the list. I had a car, better hours, better pay. Would I be her driver? And I said, sure. So I became Shelly Winter's driver. Oh my gosh. And eventually Helen, her assistant left and I knew her schedule and she loved having an attractive young man on her arm when she went places. So I became the assistant and <laughs> she gave me to Tammy Grimes, who gave me to Marino Sullivan, who gave me to Gab Kaplan, who gave me to Richard Kiley, who gave me to Rex Harrison, who gave me to Cloris Leachman. Oh my gosh. Now, now speaking of Rex Harrison, did he become a client of what did you do for Rex? Oh, no, Rex uh, was in a show uh, that I was working on. I wound up working with Noel, uh, his son, on a show called uh, uh, Housekeeper with opposite Cloris Leachman. So one thing just led to the other. You know, each person passed me on when they had a show or when they didn't need me because they weren't working. I was passed on to another artist. Well, there there comes a time. Now, you have to realize that you seem to be doing more for artists than you yourself so it's time for you to incorporate and start getting a list of clients when did you incorporate and who was your first major client and which one of your earliest clients had the most impact on you and you found the most interesting i think the the first one to have the most impact on me was cloris leachman um, she wanted me to pursue performing. Um, she made me go through scripts with her, recite lines while she was in the tub. I saw her in the nude more times than anyone can imagine. Um, she, um, she, she worked with me, taught me how to, things go in circles, that funny things happen in threes. She was doing, she was playing a homeless woman in, um, in Housekeeper and she made me follow homeless women through Denver to mark down what they were doing and she would do the same thing. So it wasn't just me going out. She followed some, then we'd compare notes and then we'd incorporate it into the script or into activities like sponging her, sponge bathing herself in the middle of a, a (laughs) it was, she taught me how to really find the guts and, and how to break something down. So that would be the first one. Um, I think um, when I came out here, going to work for Mrs. Carson and Bob and Divorce Hope would probably be the next level of 
At one point I was working for three women. I was working for Joanne Carson, Lindsay Wagner, and Valerie Harper at the same time. Wow. And uh, Now, when you're working for these stars, Mm -hmm. how do you determine how much they are supposed to pay you? I I basically took what they offered. (laughs) And were they generous? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay, now, Bob and Dolores Hope. Oh, I hope you see it. Uh, I know you read my book, and thankfully, because you were the publicist in L.A. for my book, and that's why I did so well in L.A. But I have the most wonderful story about Bob Hope. And then if you go to my site, uh, World, Bob Hope gave up a Christmas performance with the troops to come and do my show on Channel 13 Live. You must watch it. I absolutely told I started out criticizing him when I reviewed him. I said, you know, if you work for General Motors or AT&T or anything like that, and you're over 65, you have to retire. Maybe the same should hold true for Bob Hope. So anyway, he called to get me fired and ended up being a close, close friend. So tell me a little bit about Bob and then Dolores, who was so sweet. Oh, yeah. I, I worked I worked under a man named Ward Grant first. He was Bob's publicist. And uh, I worked between he and Dale Olson. They were my two mentors in PR. Uh, Dale handled uh, Rock Hudson, Marilyn Monroe, tons of others, Shirley MacLaine. Um, Ward handled Bob. And I wound up working under Ward Grant for several years before Bob passed. And then Ward died. And I took over all the PR for the Hope family. I still handle Linda Hope uh, and and the Hope family, uh, the legacy. Um, now, two quick questions. Why would a star as magnificently well-known as Bob Hope need a publicist? And why would his daughter Linda need a publicist? Um, well, with with Bob, there was always some new appearance, some show coming yes. up, something we had to uh, promote. Um, oh. Heaven knows how many books did he do, and I, I promoted three of them. Um, he had books that were out, and that became my specialty for him. Um, um, Dear Prez, I, I want to tell you was one of the big ones. Um, and um, Dolores, Dolores was uh, the real, in all honesty, the, the heart, the, the, uh, she did the charity. She did all the, she did, she, she ran that household. Um, she knew it. she not plus being talented she could sing so well that's how they met she was a singer um i work for linda because the bob hope legacy has continued obviously i mean and the foundation the bob and dolores hope foundation continues to help um um children uh, women of domestic violence and and veterans oh, so it's a constant and we've got the book out now dear um dear bob uh, which is letters and correspondence that he had with veterans of World War, or sorry, uh, soldiers, nurses, people who were in World War II. Is it out now? It's out now. It's called Dear Bob. Can I get a copy? Yes. Oh, please send me a copy. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll read that. some of it on the air. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, uh, Linda, Linda and a woman named Martha Bolton, who was Bob's writer for 15 years, put it together. First female writer, and she was first staff female writer. She was with him for 15 years. They did the book together and he collected everything. He was at one point getting 37 to 38,000 letters a week. Oh my goodness. From people in the military. 
Um, it was, and, and he, he and uh, Mrs. Hughes, who was his assistant at the time responded to absolutely everything. One of the things that amazed me the most is when he was traveling, people would say, you know, cause correspondence back then was nowhere near what it is today. And they knew that he'd be back in the States long before they were, or able to write. And they would write their number, a phone number down. This is my wife. This is my girlfriend. This is my mother or whatever. And he called every one of them. Oh my gosh. How to say, I'm, you know, I was with your son. I was with your, you know, your daughter who was a nurse or whatever. Um, And they wanted me to, he would follow up on every one of them. And one of the greatest legacies this man left us is when I went to book signings with him or I went to events with him, the people in line weren't necessarily the people who saw him or met him um, at USO shows or in the past, they were the children, the grandchildren of the father or the mother or whoever who had oh. been there when Bob was there because they kept every correspondence. They, I was always surprised to see these people who would bring in letters they got from Bob Hope in frames. Did he ever tell you what his favorite movie was or his favorite actor or favorite actress was? I don't think he could. Uh, I don't think he, uh, he uh, favorite. I mean, of course, he loved working with Bing and he loved working with Dottie. Um, Dorothy. You no, know, to me, his very best movie was the one he did with Lucille Ball. Oh, he loved her. Loved oh her. God, what a really good movie. And he turned out to be a really good actor. Now, to you, what was, who was the most independent and the most unusual female artist you worked to? I know, I know, listen, I know you and Angela Lansbury are the closest of friends. And I saw her in her very, very first picture. I believe it was a picture of Dorian Gray. I have to trust you on that. I'm thinking yeah. Gaslight, the one, first one I became familiar no, with. No, no, the picture. Oh, I know there was more before that, but that became the one yes, I was. It was yeah. a picture of Dorian Gray. George Sanders was in that film. And throughout her entire career, she evidenced a versatility and talent seen by very few actresses. I mean, she could do anything. So was she one of the most interesting or named somebody else? No, uh, yeah, no, she's right up there. It's hard for me to say who is more interested than others. Angie is always kinder to me than I, than I possibly deserve. Uh, she, she has been a cheerleader of mine. Uh, when I was in DC, when uh, my client Jerry Herman was receiving the Kennedy Center, uh, she kept giving me credit for things I, I didn't deserve credit for. Um, she was, she's one of the nine ladies, uh, my clients of mine that I inducted, that I arranged to be, have their items from their careers inducted into Smithsonian. Oh my goodness. There was uh, Angela, Angela, Phyllis Diller, uh, Esther Williams, Rosemarie, Carol Channing, June Lockhart, Tippi Hedren, Florence Henderson, and uh, Julie Newmar. We, I had them all on stage. And we had them, there were items from their careers that were going to the Smithsonian. And which is kind of funny because one of the things I told you about Cloris, you know, seeing her in the nude all the time, one of the <laughs> comments, one of the comments that was made, a um, woman from Associated Press asked them all when we opened it up to questions, they said, other than the obvious, what do you all, do you all have anything else in common? And Esther Williams, for whatever reason, decided to go, yeah, our publicist, Harlan Bull, has seen us all naked. 
Oh my God, that's hilarious. And humor was not in that she said it, <laughs> but that every woman on stage went, yeah, yeah. So, oh yeah. Oh my God, oh my. What did, what did Phyllis Diller contribute? You know, I loved Phyllis when I was in LA and I had a, I had, uh, I had a half dozen shows, but every time I got a show, I tried to have her on. So I, she was on with me twice. And I absolutely loved her. And I first loved her when Jack Parr had her on, this young middle-aged woman who mm-hmm. is a concert pianist, yeah. gives it all up. What did she contribute to the Smithsonian? Uh, she contributed her joke file. Really? Was a, two large filing cabinets with a little, you know, like you get uh, card indexes at a library. And they had jokes on them and they were filed according to subject matter or, you know, different things. And so that was what she gave in. Um, Phyllis was one of those. I inherited her through Bob and Dolores. Really? Um, And she was wonderful to me. Um, She threw a a birthday party for me uh, towards the end of her life. I have so much of her artwork throughout my house because she was also an artist. And she um, she uh, she was so funny. Um, I, the party I showed up early to see if I could help set up because I figured it was a lot of work and she had hired waiters and, you know, served the, the champagne and everything else. And, and uh, I walked in the kitchen. There she was helping put the hors d'oeuvres together. And I teased her. I said, I'm going to go upstairs and steal one of your wigs because I want it as a souvenir. And she said, oh, do you want one of those? I said, yes. She said, here, take this one and threw it out. Oh, my God. That's funny. I now, still have it. Listen, you speak of her artwork. Having seen your place... You could charge admission to see your house because you have unbelievable artifacts. Yeah. You must have half of Bob Hope's stuff. I've got, I've got uh, his golf club that he used in his... Uh, when he passed away, the family came in and, and got what they wanted to remember him by. And then the staff was called in and we got what we wanted. And I got his USO jacket and his his uh, trunk, his traveling trunks that he, he had on board the Queen Mary. Um, oh I have his and, this, and uh, they, the the Queen Mary the Queen Mary has been begging me for it. Um, that, those trunks must be worth a fortune. Well, I've got one. Yeah, it's I don't know what it's worth. Uh, someone told me that the trunk itself, without being Bob's, is is somewhere around twenty five grand right now. Oh my goodness! So I have no idea the fact, and it's got his initials on it. It's embroidered, you know, and uh, uh, I use it to put Bob's stuff in. I have a lot of his stuff. So the trunk is actually full of Bob's stuff. Wow. Now, for for the men, mm-hmm. which one of, and you've represented half of them, which one of them did you find the most interesting or the most unusual? I hate to ask you these questions because oh, no, they're no, probably, no. probably still alive and waiting. If that son of a bitch says somebody else, I'm going to fire I- yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no. I, well, m- the men are all gone right now. Um, Gregory Peck, John Forsythe, um, to Rip Taylor was always kept me laughing. Um, it's it's real. Mr. Blackwell, of course, uh, I got very involved in his life. And in fact, working on a new book about him right now and a new film about him right now. You're making um, a movie about him? They're, I'm working with a wonderful producer Nate, who was nominated for a film called uh, Ferdinand for Academy Award. She's now working with me on a new film. Uh, we want to call it The List. It's a TV movie film, a TV movie. 
Um, but it's about his, yeah, about his life. And he, he, cause he contributed so much that people don't realize other than the best dressed, you know, best and worst dressed. He was the first one. He had done so much more that people don't realize. I think I read somewhere a long time ago that when he passed, I think it was the first time that I saw your name in print or something. Possibly. That, that he so admired you. He left you a lot. He left me all intellectual properties to his life. Um, all of, I have several dresses. I have his books. I have his lists. I have everything. Um, I have uh, his artwork. Um, uh, and of course, he left me money too. Um, but uh, one of the things he asked of me was to make sure people didn't forget who he was, forget him. And I've done everything I can to keep his legend and his, his name alive. So. And, it, and, it, and this movie is going to be called The List. And why is it called The List? Well, we're, we're, because most people will recognize him from The List. But it goes much further. Because you were talking about, um, um, oh, you just met, said her name a moment ago. Uh, that you, Her one-woman show that you love so much. Oh, Josephine Baker. Josephine Baker, yeah. He, he, he had her at the house. Uh, he adored her. Um, he worked with uh, a lot of individuals. He, um, he, uh, he just had an incredible life. He worked with, uh, he was one of the original deading kids on Broadway. Was he really? Yeah. He, well, he only showed for one night on Broadway. And the reason for that, they took him off the streets. He was hustling. He was, he was a hustler. He was a kid uh, oh. hustling on the streets and they took him to put him in the show so that they could send him on tour so that they could le- legally uh, legitimately say direct from Broadway. <laughs> So he was only in one Broadway show then. He later would be with Mae West um, and others and Gypsy Rose Lee. He's the only man who was on, allowed on stage when she stripped. Uh-huh. And uh, he, um, but he worked with Mae West. He worked with several others. Uh, he was a young star. He worked in, he was in the movie Dead in Kids. And then he, he worked with. Um, now, the Dead in Kids, was that was Leo Gorsi and Hans Hall? Or different dead end kids. Do you remember? No, the first one. The first one. Oh my goodness! How amazing is yeah. that? And, and he worked with. He was in a, a, ju- a juvenile court with Rita Hayworth as a kid. He was in. He worked with Humphrey Bogart, Gene Kelly, several others. Uh, he worked under the name Dick Ellis. <laughs> um, and then, uh, as time went on, he used to call himself. And it's sad. He was the casting couch cast. Yeah. You know, why would he, why would he say that? Was because he, they took advantage of him. He was the one they called in when they wanted a quick romp on the sofa. Um, hold up. Is that because he was a really handsome young man? He was a very attractive young man, yeah. Oh, my gosh. And what? he came from a background, his way of surviving uh, the streets, because his uh, father used to abuse him horribly. Uh, he, went, he, was, he wound up living on the streets, and he turned tricks to stay alive and oh so was a, god almighty now listen here you came from a different background oh yeah his fabulous publicist he came from the streets and wasn't he known as one of the best designers of women's clothing in america he handled yes he handled a lot of celebrities he did jane mansfield jane not sorry jane mansfield jane russell um he did uh, a number of women. He was known for handling the buxom, you know, a lot of the buxom women, with the exception of maybe Nancy Reagan. She wasn't exactly buxom, um, but he he did he worked with Anne Blythe. He worked with um, just a host of others. 
um, designed for them. He, I have photos of him working with uh, Goldie Hawn, with Michelle Lee, with a host of others. And um, he was also the first first designer to introduce ethnics, Asian Black women in his fashion shows. Oh, was, good for him. Yeah, he was also the very first one to introduce plus sizes women to his fashion shows. Um, not, they weren't all the t- typical sticks. He, he would make two women would come out side by side, one plus size and one, you know, one. Marvin, listen, I'm telling you, if it's done right, that is one fabulous story. Oh, yeah. And he was also one of the first people to basically, when he and his partner Spencer got together, the industry treated him like he was a leper because he had dated Tyrone Power Jr. And the studios came in and said, hell no. We're not going to have we're not going to have you destroy what we put a lot of money into and broke them up. Oh, you said Tyrone Power Jr. You mean there's a son or is this Tyrone Power? Tyrone Power. But there's Tyrone Power. He was Tyrone Power. And then there's Tyrone Power Jr. Who's I've also worked with. He was a wonderful guy. Um, but uh, um, Tyrone Power, the, the main, you know, the one everyone thinks the of. Major the, handsome the major handsome movie. Major handsome, right. Um Sorry, I said junior because I was I worked in shows with junior um, Tyrone Power. He dated Tyrone Power. And then he when they broke him up, he stayed with Randolph Scott and Cary Grant for a while. Oh, my God. And, uh, and then the studios, the studios just gave him such a hard time that he had to get into other fields. And he started designing clothes for women he represented as an agent. Oh. And the dumb thing is, eventually, the women he was handling singing in studios, in, um, in cabarets, and even for Peron, um, weren't getting as much press as the costumes he was making. Oh, God, you mentioned Randall Scott and Cary Grant. In my book, which you obviously read, Your Mother's yeah. Not a Virgin, is a really adorable a story about how he stopped his Cadillac next to me when I was 17 and tried to pick me up, which is funny. But here's a great Randolph Scott story. Randolph Scott was a golfer and the Los Angeles Country Club was very, very restrictive, as you probably know then, really restrictive. And he told them that he was an oil magnet because he was wealthy and he could fake some documents and stuff like that. So he got to join the Los Angeles Country Club. But after a year and a half, of course, they researched everybody. They find out the son of a bitch is an actor. So they call him in and they tell him that he's an actor. And he says, no, I'm not. And I got 78 movies to prove it. (laughs) (laughs) So so, now you mentioned earlier, George C. Scott. I always, always love Scott. Of course, in Patton, you know, in in Patty Shayevsky's hospital. He's magnificent. With a lot of great movies, and uh, oh my God, the uh, Doctor Strange Love. Oh my God, he was so so good. But you were, knew him. What was he like? Because- oh, uh, um, no, George C. Scott. Yeah. No, I didn't know know him. Oh, I thought you did. No, no, I didn't know him. Oh, uh, he was in a theater that, that they where he started his career in the same theater I began mine. Oh, I see. I, I, I actually never got to work with him. I would love to have worked with him. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. I knew him. I All my stories about him or thoughts of him come from actually Bob Boat, who knew did him. You, did you meet Gregory Peck? Oh, I worked. I handled Gregory PR uh, for the Library Foundation. All the, the books. The Mockingbird. 
Oh yeah, I have I have a I have a signed first edition. You do? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, she she signed a fir- I have a signed first edition from her. Oh my gosh, that was I must say that was his very very best performance ever. Oh, yeah. Good actor, but that was what And was he was a, he was a genuinely wonderful man. It was so funny. We did a tribute to him one year at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel. And Jack Lemon was there, Angelica Houston, Sally Field, a host of others all there. And uh, it's, I'll get into another story that probably has nothing to do with this, but uh, everyone decided they wanted to sing a song for him that night. So I, I found a, a room upstairs that had a piano, like a mini, uh, mini ballroom of some sort. And they all went upstairs and they, everyone's rehearsing and, and going over the music. And I noticed a man standing in the corner and I thought, okay, I don't know him, so I should probably find out why he's here because he's not singing. And I walked over and said, can I help you? He said, I, he said I, I'm Norman. I'm here with Angie Dick- Dickinson. And I said, oh, okay, well, fine. And I said, I'm Harlan. And he said, Harlan, Harlan Bowl. And I said, yeah, my ego started growing. It's like, <laughs> oh, he knows my name. And I said, yeah. He said, oh, yeah, Judy, uh, J- uh, Judy Davidson, Gordon Davidson, Tony Award winning director's wife apparently had told him about me and that I was a great writer and everything I was doing. And I said, Oh, and so I started talking about writing and what I was trying to do. And I had a couple of books out and I was trying to get another project up and running and how hard it was and putting everything together. And out of the blue, Judy Davidson walked into the room, saw us standing in the corner, walked over and said, Oh good. I'm so glad you two met, you know, Mr. Lear has been a friend of our family for years. And I went Lear, Norman Lear, Oh, isn't that... He wasn't wearing his hat. I didn't recognize him. And I said, you really don't need to know what it's like to be a writer, do you? He said, no, but you seem to enjoy telling me about it so much. Oh, God. Harlan, you've got to send me Bob Hope's book. Okay. You must tell me that you're going to come back again because we're going to tell a whole lot more stories. Would you like to tell us one last goodbye story? Actually, I would because it goes right back to Jimmy Stewart and what you started with. Um... I adored the man and I adored Gloria. And um, I did, I worked on three productions, um, All About Eve uh, uh, at the Amundsen Theater um, uh, uh, with all-star cast, Stocker Channing, Angela Lansbury, Kirk Douglas, um, uh, Stock, uh, Jennifer Tilly, Tim Curry. It was a great, a great show. Um, then we did, a, the, followed it up with Sunset Boulevard with Angelica Houston, Sir, wow. ben King, Sir Ben Kingsley at the Pantages, and then did Casablanca. But one of my, we unfortunately never made it to the fourth year. We took a great film and put it on stage with an all-star cast. And uh, my one that I wanted so badly to do was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Oh, my. And I, I, I wanted to reverse the roles, and I wanted to go to Jodie Foster and ask her to play Mr. Smith, only make it Mrs. Smith. And I wanted, I called Tippy Hedren and I wanted her to do the senator, kind of reverse oh, all the roles and bring it into a modern day. Um, it never happened. But that if I have a dream, I would love, love, love to bring back. Oh, my that. God. What a great idea. Well, no wonder you're so successful because you're so imaginative. And you can see, you can see here's, 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 uh, here's all about Eve and right over here is Sunset Boulevard. So. Oh, my God. Bless you. And thank you so much for being here. And being one of my dearest friends, I can't wait to get to L.A. and take you to Moose of Franks again. And yeah. More stories. Anyway, thank you all so much. Doug, thank you so much for your help. And thank you all for watching. And in two weeks, another fantastic Talking Movies. Till then, good luck.